0: This episode of Insights is brought to you by MNP Digital, a firm that guides, protects, and empowers organizations along their digital journey. See how at mnpdigital.ca. Welcome to this edition of the Insights Podcast on the Huddle Network. I'm Don Mills.
1: And I'm David Campbell.
0: Yeah. So, David, uh, you know, this continues our series with the premiers uh, our, on the Insights podcast. Um, and we, we, we end up with the final uh, conversation with uh, Andrew Fury, uh, the premier of Newfoundland and Labrador. He's been premier for less than two years. And he comes with a very interesting background, doesn't he? Yeah,
1: that's right. His, I didn't actually I should have known that I didn't realize his father was the head of the Senate of Canada. Uh, so there's a really strong political pedigree there, and he he uh, talks a bit about that in our discussion. So certainly, the politics is in the blood, and he does seem very comfortable in the role.
0: I was uh, I really enjoyed this conversation. I I, I was a bit uh, surprised is probably not the right word, but I was uh, taken with how thoughtful he was on the subjects that we uh, asked him about. You know, he's. Uh, a very bright guy, obviously, uh, has given a lot of thought to the big issues. Uh, one of the things I'd forgotten about is that the first thing that he did ap- upon being elected is he appointed a commission uh, headed by Dame Moya Green to take a look at the uh, fiscal crisis in Newfoundland. And, and you've taken a look at that report. So have I. It was uh, jarring and had, uh, you know, some pretty Heavy recommendations, um, uh, recognizing that it would take five to 10 years to turn the ship around financially, fiscally. And, you know, they seem to be he seems to be using that as a bit of a blueprint uh, in his actions, doesn't he?
1: Yeah, I think so. I mean, he, he talks a bit about that and uh, quite a bit about that, actually, in our conversation. I mean, as you said, he's talking about an eight to 10 year time frame to get back to sort of fiscal stability in the province. So they're giving themselves a window. But as long as they're heading in the right direction, I think the markets will respond. And I think, you know, your concern about the possibility of a bankrupt Newfoundland and Labrador. As long as they're on a proper path, I don't I think they'll be fine. It's this issue of running these these sort of systemic deficits of $800 million, $900 million a year. That does put them on a, a path for uh, insolvency eventually. So I think this is, you know, what he's saying is actually, if he can do it, uh, is going to get the province on the straight and narrow over a fairly long period of time.
0: Yeah, and he told us a couple of things that I think actually did come out of the Green Report. Uh, you know, the idea of... Uh, putting together a future fund using some of the revenues from oil and gas to uh, help transition the uh, economy uh, over time and also to pay down the debt. A debt, by the way, uh, that he recognized, and I talked about this and people didn't believe me, that the debt for the province in total, everything in, was about $45 billion for a population of about uh, 500,000. That's an enormous debt to to bring down, obviously. But uh, nonetheless... um, I really like the idea that he's implemented the Future Fund. Uh, that was done in Norway to great success, as you know. They have so much money in Norway uh, that uh, it's, uh, it's hard to believe how, how well off that nation is as a result of uh, taking that exact uh, action. So that, that, was a, that was an interesting part of our conversation.
1: Yes, and I did like his discussion of the province's ability to pivot from cod to oil to now possibly hydrogen. Uh, so I think that kind of sort of understanding there's an opportunity to, to benefit from oil and gas over the next 20 and 30 years, but to be planting the seeds and making the investments for a longer term energy transition, I think he's, very, he's got a very clear uh, uh, um, uh, view of where he wants to take the province. And I think uh, I, I like what I hear from him on that energy transition.
0: Yeah, and also, uh, oil and gas is still an enormous opportunity for Newfoundland over the next couple of decades. As you mentioned, there's a new field uh, just waiting to come on, uh, you know, uh, once it gets approval by the feds, that will be able to produce upwards of 200,000 barrels of oil a day uh, of what they call sweet oil, which is easier to refine and has lower emissions uh, attached to it. And uh, the point that he made, uh, which I... I think uh, is really important given what's going on worldwide with the oil uh, market is that Newfoundland could be part of the solution for Europe uh, going ahead and, and getting off Russian oil. And, uh, you know, the oil's not landlocked, as he mentioned. And, you know, it, we have a direct line to Europe uh, from uh, Newfoundland. So, you know, that could be very, very important to, um, to the world uh, uh, oil market uh, looking ahead.
1: Yeah, I mean, we have to be able to walk and chew gum at the same time. We know we have a 2050 target for net zero, and we have to head in that direction, and we have to be aggressive in that direction. But if we can supply the world's demand for oil and gas in the interim with that cleaner oil from offshore Newfoundland, I don't don't see what the downside to that is. So I hope the feds, you know, get cracking on Bay du Nord. Uh, and I hope, I hope that, uh, the province can continue to benefit from that industry for, you know, t- 20, maybe 30 years until we, we, uh, we, we finally transition out of, uh, fossil fuels.
0: And we talked about this on our previous podcast. And I think it bears repeating, you know, no one should expect that we're going to be off fossil fuels anytime soon. It's a question of, uh, of moving, uh, uh over a period of time to more renewables, but we're still going to need fossil fuels for, you know, uh, probably 30 years or, or maybe even longer. So people need to relax about that. It's a question about getting to net zero with even using fossil fuels as part of our way of generating energy. And uh, people are just going to have to accept that that's the reality that we live in.
1: That's right. And very happy to hear his interest and eagerness, in fact, to, for more Atlantic cooperation. That's uh, music to your ears and mine as well. Uh, a a little, not quite as uh, as as uh, fully supportive of the Atlantic Investment Tax Credit, but certainly seems very willing to hear more about it. And uh, so I think we can we can see from all four of these premiers, we can see an interest in better collaboration uh, in the years ahead.
0: And one final point before we uh, move to our conversation with Andrew, which I think is is important too. And I, you know, having completed the four uh, conversations. Now there's a lot of commonalities. They're not in the solutions, solutions around cooperation, solutions around, um, uh, you know, uh, changing, uh, healthcare, uh, delivery. Um, uh, they're coming to the same place at almost at the same time, uh, population growth, all those things that, that I thought we would never see happen are happening and they're happening right across the line of Canada.
1: It's a new day, Don, and it looks like you and I, even though we're both getting a little bit uh, p- past our best before date, it looks <laughs> like we may actually see a thriving and growing uh, uh, region here in Atlantic Canada. And I, and I know some people are cynical about that, but I'm, I, these four conversations have made me more optimistic than I've been in a while.
0: I've never been more optimistic, and I, I encourage everybody to listen to this very insightful conversation with the Premier of Newfoundland, Andrew Fury. Premier, welcome to our podcast.
1: How's it going? Thanks for having me. We would like to begin by finding out a bit about your background and your path to becoming Premier of Newfoundland and Labrador. Before you entered politics, you were an orthopedic surgeon. That's quite a change. What has been your path to your current role as Premier?
2: Yeah, it certainly has been a change, uh, but I've been very fortunate in my life to to have been raised by a loving family who uh, instilled in me a sense of public service and That was a a deep uh, calling uh, that I always had and uh, try to to excel at that along the way in my own capacity uh, as an orthopedic surgeon, whether it was uh, providing care to patients at home or creating opportunities to provide care for those that didn't have it uh, around the world. And uh, seeing the the state of the province at, at this particular moment in time, um, and on top of that, compounding is a, a public health emergency. Um, I also happen to have a master's in clinical epidemiology. so, you know, I really felt that, uh, that the province was in a tough spot. It needed uh, a new voice, a strong, a strong voice towards a, a, with a vision for a sustainable future for Newfoundland and Labrador. And it's easy to lead in good times uh, you know oils at 120 dollars a barrel and you know we're you know back in the 2008 it's certainly more challenging now but I think the people of Newfoundland and Labrador recognize that the challenges are equally are equal opportunities in disguise and to be able to sit in this chair at this particular moment in history uh, is it gives me incredible confidence in the people of Newfoundland and Labrador to be able to create and chart their own path
1: forward. So I wanted to ask you what motivated you to enter politics in the first place, but I think you've answered that question. It was the, you saw sort of the state of things and felt like it was time for you to jump in and 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 try to help the province at a pretty challenging time.
2: Absolutely. And of course, you know, I don't want to downplay my family history. Uh, my father, of course, is uh, is a, is the Speaker of the Senate of Canada and, uh, You know, to see his trajectory uh, and commitment to public service along his life, uh, being raised in Mount Cashel Orphanage and then, uh, you know, becoming a teacher and educator and giving back to rural communities in Newfoundland and Labrador, then going on to law school when I was a child, you know, he instilled in me not just the sense of curiosity that is, I think, incumbent upon any leader uh, to have, uh, also really instilled in me the sense of public service, uh, the sense of the greater good. And um, really um, allowed me to see beyond the walls of the hospital, even though that's an incredibly important and rewarding job, but to see the bigger picture of how you could contribute uh, at a a larger uh, scale.
0: Uh, Premier, you're part of a, a crop of new premiers that have been elected in the last couple of years. You were elected, I think, in August of 2020. As you said, you just got in at the right time, I guess, for all the action. Uh, in, in, including uh, the release of the Green Report, which uh, took a look uh, at the financial challenges that are facing the province and made a, a number of, I guess, really quite hard-hitting recommendations to, indre- to address the province's fiscal uh, situation and high debt levels. Can you talk about the progress that the, pro- the province has made in the past year
2: on this front? Sure. Uh, first of all, you know, the the PERC team, was something that we initiated very early in my mandate. Um, I believe it was, you know, I took office in August. I I believe this started in September. I could be off by a week or two Uh, because we recognized the incredible uh, fiscal and economic crisis that Newfoundland and Labrador was facing. It had, I think, raised alarm bells to the point where many in the public arena were conversing about it, but certainly not everybody. Uh, so we needed a fulsome review uh, from outside government about the state uh, of the fiscal affairs of the province the state of the economic affairs of the province and then to succinctly some to succinctly put that into a report so people's financial and economic uh, literacy would be elevated around the seriousness of the situation facing Newfoundland and labrador of course fiscally we all know that you know Newfoundland and labrador had the highest debt to GDP ratio when I took over there's a fiscal gap of about 800 million dollars a year uh, almost inherent within the budget um, and we had a looming economic crisis uh, beyond which is really is a demographic crisis which has been creeping up for generations now um, there is incredible uh, financial opportunities here in the province but if we don't solve the economic demographic one then there's not going to be the workforce it's not going to be the ability to achieve our full potential so you had a fiscal crisis you had a demographic crisis and an economic one all kind of compounding on top of the public health crisis at the same time and moya did a dame moya green did a a marvelous job of packaging that so people don't we never suggested that everyone would agree with everything in it in fact that wasn't the point the point was to summarize it, give us options so that we could create a roadmap towards a more fiscal, uh, economic, and demographic sustainable uh, place to be. And so there were some big suggestions in there, but I think overarching everything, uh, the report suggested that this should be a five to 10 year plan. Um, and that's what, that's how we've tackled this with a series of, uh, a balance i would suggest of one of measure uh so that we don't shock of course you know anyone can balance the books and but you know we can do that here in in five ten minutes and but the question is what does the society look like when you're finished and so we need to make we need to make sure that we're pulling on the levers at the right time and uh, i'm happy to say that we have advanced some of the some of the big suggestions in in the in the report, uh, like uh, creating a future fund. Um, We know that Newfoundland and Labrador is rich in in, uh, commodities, uh, but we also know that there's volatility built into those commodities. Um, So I think it's important that we uh, recognize in high times, like now, um, is the time to consider taking a portion of that revenue stream and setting it aside for, for the future. Of course, that has to be balanced with, you know, with with investment and everything else. But um, we've also passed balanced budget legislation. Uh, We have uh, looked to advance some green initiatives, which I think is incredibly important uh, for Newfoundland and Labrador moving into the future. And stay tuned. Uh, You're going to see some big moves on that front for Newfoundland and Labrador. Um, And we, you know, we've done some the basic housekeeping things that probably should have been done, like uh, right-sizing some of our boards and agencies, uh, taking some of them into government. Uh, that will take time, of course, to recognize the savings from. But uh, I think they're prudent, responsible fiscal things to do. So, it, it was a, it was a nice summary, I think, where people really understood all of a sudden that, oh my God, there's 500,000 of us uh, living here, and we have 45 billion dollars in debt. And, and I mean, that's you know, that's not. That's total debt. Um, So it 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 really made people understand that we had a fiscal crisis that we had to deal with, and uh, this gave us a some roadmap uh, to uh, try to try to achieve that. And when you break them down into the economic, fiscal, and demographic levers, I think then it it starts to make some sense to people. And so we're you know we're we're moving along uh, with uh, some of it. I mean some of it there is is you know we're not keen to do. I'm not going to lie, but it was never going to be a here, you know, here you had to do this. That wasn't the mandate. The mandate was provide a report with options and uh, we'll try our best to come up with a plan in the next, uh, that will get us back to a sustainable balance in the next five to 10 years. Um, it took us a long time to get here and it's going to take us a long time to get out. And I think given the, uh, Given the state of the economy, certainly a year ago, uh, when no one really knew what was going to happen post-pandemic or where the economy was going to be, what kind of recovery curve was going to be attached to it, um, to take harsh uh, fiscal measures uh, to try to, you know, and as an accounting exercise, may not really pay dividends long term. So we, I think we're, we've hit a, a nice balance of transformation, uh, and fiscal prudency that, you know, to be more fiscal prudence, sorry, that will, uh, will allow us to get to that five to 10 year plan.
0: You know, just as an aside, um, you know, I've spent a lot of my career in Newfoundland over the years. And I remember about, uh, I don't know, might've been five or six years ago, I was speaking, uh, at, the the chamber, uh, or event in uh, St. John's and, um, or the board event at St. Border Trade event in St. John's. And I indicated at that time, I was a pretty um, open uh, about what I thought was going on. I, I thought the province was on the verge of bankruptcy at the time. And, uh, you know, everybody agreed, but nobody was willing to do anything about it. And that had been the history, as you know, for a really long time. So I thought the Green Report uh, was really an important uh, step in the recognition of the problem and the need for action. So I think that I give you you credit for doing that really early in your mandate. I thought it was a really important move. Um, uh, Now, Newfoundland and Labrador's economy is heavily dependent on the oil and gas sector, obviously. The sector currently represents, I believe, about 25% of the province's GDP. So it's it's a big part. What is the province's long-term strategy to diversify its economy, given the ongoing pressures to reduce the use of fossil fuels to to protect the environment?
2: Yeah, that's a great question. And, um, you know, I think Newfoundland and Labrador are different than some other petroleum producing uh, jurisdictions is perfectly positioned for this time of transition. I think we all accept the premise and the proposition that we're in a time of transition. Like we, we take that at face value and it would be wrong for us to ignore it. And we're not. What we do need to realize is that there is an imperative there, I believe, uh, to use the lowest carbon emitting oil during that period of transmission. A transition, sorry. We have that off our shores. We have a non-renewable resource that is non-landlocked. It's sweet petroleum product. It's easier to refine. It's, you know, the newer projects are coming in at six to eight kilograms a barrel of carbon versus, you know, 60 to 80 in in the oil sands, for example. So this is a product I think the world needs right now. It would be wrong for us, and we've learned histories, we've learned lessons from history here in Newfoundland and Labrador. We cannot just continue down that same road and pretend nothing else exists. We need to take the value of that resource and invest it then into uh, renewable resources, which we're also incredibly lucky to have an abundance of, whether it's our hydroelectric capacity, or frankly, some uh, you know a resource that we have just begun to scratch the surface of, namely, wind. We have an abundance of wind here. Anyone who has been to this province knows the strength and the force of the wind around our shores. Well, that makes us perfectly positioned, in my estimation, for to be a, a strong player in the hydrogen market moving forward. We have the ability to generate significant quantums of electricity. We have an abundance of fresh water. We have uh, deep sea ports. And we have, uh, you know, we're geographically positioned not only to the northeastern seaboard, but certainly to Europe, which in my estimation is is betting towards the hydrogen market in a big kind of way especially for large transport vehicles and and others. So you know and on top of all of that frankly we have a workforce who's used uh, to transitioning from one industry to another mainly around our coastline. So you know we have this incredible opportunity when it comes to the hydrogen market that other jurisdictions don't have. So you know different than potentially some other places we are we are able to hold two thoughts in our head at once. We have this incredible resource that needs to be developed right now. But we also know that, hey, that's not going to be valuable forever. We need to do it now, to do it because, A, it's the right product. It makes sense environmentally. It makes sense economically, of course, for our province. It makes sense now geopolitically. Uh, and But we also need to take, we can't just spend that money like some other governments have in the past. We need to make sure that we're using that money to funnel into renewables. So that's part of the Future Fund. The Future Fund will take... Um, revenue uh, from volatile commodities like you know, like oil and take a portion of that, use it, to, it'll flow into uh, the future fund. Some of that will save, stay as a, a saving. Some will be used to pay off debt or the only other mechanism that can be used for us to transition to a renewable energy sector.
0: Now the price of oil has dramatically increased recently, uh, due to increasing world demand. Obviously, what impact has the increase in oil prices had on the province's fiscal situation? I'm I'm assuming positive.
2: Yeah, sure. It's look, it's better than if it was at forty dollars a barrel, but you can't forget, um, and I think people do. Uh, our production is probably the lowest it's been in a decade. Um, we have one of our major oil producing platforms, the Terra Nova a floating production facility that's in Spain right now being refurbished. Um, We also have, during the COVID pandemic, that was suspended in the early days, our uh, West White Rose extension, gravity-based platform was suspended. And of course, all the drilling on the existing offshore platforms uh, ceased in, in the middle of when no one knew what was happening in this market. Uh, so our production is uh, is low as it's been uh, in in a decade. Uh, so there's no question it's better than if it was at forty dollars a barrel, uh, but it's it's certainly not going to give us uh, the fiscal reward, uh, the revenue stream that it would have. Uh, just say, in, I think two thousand and eight might have been our largest year when we were raking in over two billion dollars a year in uh, in oil re- in oil royalties and revenues. We don't have anything like that. Uh, Frankly, that's not uh, that's not the position we're in. So better than if it was low, we're hopeful that it remains high, of course, uh, you know, as as these production facilities come back on stream and, gel- and drilling on the existing uh, platforms is extended.
1: Uh, Premier, the probably you mentioned it earlier, probably the biggest challenge, if not, uh, along with oil and gas and transitioning is the demographic uh, issue in the province um I think you were the only province to lose population in the between the census of 2016 and 2021. The other three uh maritime provinces have started to grow their population and I know you're moving in that direction as well. Can you tell us a little bit about the strategy to get the province back to population growth?
2: Part of our demographic issue here in Newfoundland and Labrador is well it's multifaceted. One is you know we lost my generation of people after the cod moratorium, you know, overnight, 30,000 people out of work, all their children, many of them left the province. So many of the people, and of course the, the psychological impact that had on the economy, on small business. Uh, many of the people who I had graduated with high school with just aren't here anymore, and that's you know. So there's this whole generation of people who are missing uh, from from our economy. So. We recognize that uh, we have missing this generation of people. We also have, you know, the oldest population in Canada. Uh, We have the lowest fertility rate in Canada. Uh, At one point in the 70s, there was, uh, you know, I think it was eight eight children for every senior. And now we have three seniors for every child. Uh, You know, I may be off by like 0.5, but that's about it. So we need to reverse that trend. So one of the first things I did uh, coming in was saying, guys, we need to put a healthy... uh, immigration policy in place. So we created an immigration department, first of all, it's a a new ministry in in the government, Uh, and we set it up differently. We set it up uh, in terms of desks so that instead of going out and advertising Newfoundland and Labrador to the world, let's have a more succinct strategy when we're approaching this. Uh, We know that there are uh, core groups of immigrants here in Newfoundland and Labrador. Let's build on those Um, So there's a substantial portion of people from Bangladesh here in in St. John's. Let's make sure that we're – marketing is not the right word, but we're exposing them in in downtown Dhaka to the benefits of Newfoundland and Labrador. And instead of advertising to the entire Southeast Asia, let's just pick select markets. So we did that. So the desk will – attached that way, but it will also attach to the needs of an employer because you can't forget that obviously you guys would know, but the demographics rising as they are puts an incredible strain on traditional industries like fish plants. Uh, you know, the average age in most of these fish plants that I'm traveling around the province on yeah. now is, is around 60 to 65. So you know, if we don't start to re- reinvest in that workforce and the resource can be there, but there's no there's no economic win. So we we've, the, the idea is that this desk will uh, shepherd both the employer and the immigrant uh, through the process without having the immigrant or the employer really know any of the forms that they need to fill out or any of that thing. Like they will know, contact David, David, you're, you, you've you've married Sajida to, uh, you know, Royal Greenland here in, in Newfoundland, like, and we'll take care of all the paperwork. Uh, so for this... You know, even in the even directing the focus of government towards immigration has paid dividends already. For the first time ever, we're meeting our targets. Uh, for the first time since 1972, listen to this: since before I was born, there are 500 new children in the K-12 system. Um, so that, that census study that you quoted is correct, but that was over a period of time. If you just look in the in the, in the truncated portion towards the end we're actually growing the population uh, for the first time in, uh, in well over a decade. So uh, there are encouraging signs. Uh, there's no question we need to do more. It's a top priority for for me and the government and uh, everyone knows that. Um, because frankly, the rest is just an accounting exercise if we don't have the people here to uh, to reach the potential of the province and enjoy the fruits of that labor.
1: Yeah, I think the other, you touched on it a bit with the fishing sector, but one of the other issues you face as a province is a very high share of the population in seasonal industries. So you have a situation where you have potentially high nominal unemployment uh, because of seasonal industries, but you have a job vacancy rate that's mostly doubled uh, since before the start of the pandemic. So you've got this sort of tension of relatively high unemployment, but also increasing job vacancies Also around the province, and Don's going to ask you in a minute about uh, growth outside of the Avalon Avalon Peninsula, but I just wanted to zoom a little bit in on immigration for a minute, if you'll let me. Uh, You have set a target of 5,000, and that's an uh, awesome target. I'm very, very happy with that number. It'll bring you in line with Nova Scotia and New Brunswick and uh, not quite PEI, but in terms of as a share of population, very good. But I wanted to ask you how confident you are in that number, given that Ontario wants a lot more immigrants, everybody wants more, and I start adding all the different provincial targets up and you're looking at 500,000 a year. So are you confident the federal government is going to give you 5,000 or give you the wiggle room to allow you to bring in 5,000, even as uh, Ontario and everybody else wants an increasing share as well?
2: Yeah no I mean everybody uh, rec- everybody has their own uh, jurisdictional demographic challenges there's no question but Newfoundland and Labradors is like no other and the fact that we are meeting the targets for the first time uh, allows us to argue and articulate for more aggressive targets uh, because we were caught in this catch 22 uh, you know a perpetual uh, argument of, uh, well, you're not meeting your targets, and so you can't have more. And then so those that are meeting the targets are getting more, and then all of a sudden there's this ex- exponential gap existing. So the first thing is to meet the targets. We've met the targets. We've had a healthy discussion uh, with the minister, Federal Minister of Immigration about how we want more, we need more, we can accommodate more. Um, there's plenty of opportunity here, as you, as you pointed out, with the employment. Um, so we will uh, continue to... Uh, Lobby continue to be aggressive in our approach uh, because it's it's necessary for the survival of Newfoundland and Labrador, and uh, and we need to capitalize on it.
0: Uh, one of the uh, challenges in attracting immigrants is, is that not all parts of the province benefit from the immig- from immigration. In fact, this is a problem across Atlantic Canada, as you know. You know, the kind of what I call the seven biggest urban areas are doing fine and attracting lots of immigrants. The rest of the region, not so much. Uh, so it's very challenging, as you know. But what is your government uh, doing to ensure that there will be population growth outside the Avalon Peninsula?
2: Yeah, sure. So we're, we're, I mean, we're really fortunate to have pockets of significant economic activity throughout the province. Uh, and some of those, by the way, are built uh, largely in the supporting industries from immigrants. Uh, for example, Labr- Labrador West and Wabush. Um incredible economic uh, you know, engine for the province right now with the price of iron ore where it is with the purity of, of the iron in that Labrador trough. Um, so that's generated a significant need for employment. It's also gener- generated a significant need for support and there's a substantive uh, Filipino population, for example, in, in Lab West right now. Uh, so there are opportunities outside the Avalon. Um, there's certainly opportunities if we, as we briefly touched on uh, with respect to the fishing industry uh, in support. Now they're not as true, even though we, you know, it's true that some is season some seasonal work, some of those plants are, are being developed to be, you know, 52 weeks a year, certainly 40 to 50 weeks a year. So so we need to make sure that they have the human capital that is required to, to run that. Um, and as I mentioned, uh, you know, some of these communities have a really aging uh, demographic, um, seen it firsthand and be wrong to ignore it. So to provide, opportunities of the beautiful scenery, safety, commu- sense of community and place of rural Newfoundland and Labrador while providing uh, economic opportunity, um, I think is a, is a healthy marriage for, uh, for immigrants coming to Newfoundland and Labrador.
0: Uh, one of the things that we've noted in looking at population data is that Atlantic Canada has a very small percentage of people that were born outside the country living in their provinces. And I think Newfoundland has the lowest percentage overall. So, you know, obviously we're new to the game of immigrants, uh, at least the immigrants who look different from us. I think that's the, that's one of the challenges that we have uh, to be able to um, uh, live with more diversity and, and learn to live with it. But what is, what is being done to improve retention rates for immigrants in, in your province?
2: Yeah, so I think, you know, first of all, it starts with the strategic lens on the outset. So I believe that in order to retain immigrants, you need a a healthy population of immigrants who are like-minded. So instead of, um, for example, instead of taking 10 from the Sudan and 10 from Iraq and from uh, Bangladesh, those those 30 people are going to move to Toronto because they can't get they can't get the cultural um, experience that they want in their own life. Uh, there's not the critical mass uh, to build a mosque, to build a local grocery store, to, to build all the things that exist in downtown Toronto or other major urban centers. So our intention is to do a more focused, uh, strategic approach uh, to create that base uh so that people won't be drawn to their cousin or their uncle or their nephew in in Vancouver or Toronto that they will have the amenities that uh fulfill them here in Newfoundland and Labrador so that's one that's one thing that we're doing I think in general um Newfoundland and Labrador is very open and welcoming and um perhaps more than it has ever been not that we ever weren't but it's certainly now there is an understanding uh that didn't exist before, I would say, of the value of diversity in the workforce and the value of diversity in society. And it's being welcomed with open arms. Uh, I think at one point, you know, no different than other areas in the country, I think at one point in our history, it was, you know, suggested that immigrants would be taking our jobs. That's completely, that's not true, as we all know. But uh, people are now seeing that they're not only not taking their jobs, they're creating them. Um, we have uh, just incredible opportunities here and to make sure that they're targeted culturally, but also targeted towards the sectors uh, that require them. We have a thriving technology sector here, just, you know, it's booming it, it, and we need to make sure. But their number one complaint is human capital. And they don't have it. Uh, so we need to make sure that we are providing a streamline to them. Uh, whether it's through the K-12 education system or through immigration to support that booming technology uh, this ecosystem that is, that is really thriving here in the province. So, you know, d- targeting at it from different lenses, I think, is, is important. But recognizing the creation of the critical mass, I think, is, is incredibly important.
1: I remember seeing the show come from away in New York uh, before the pandemic. And I thought to myself, if you can bottle that and target that at newcomers, uh, you know, not just those that, uh, that were there temporarily. I think, uh, yeah, that sort of spirit that Newfoundlanders and Labradorians have, I think is going to be great for immigration.
2: Yeah, no, no, it, it, it truly is. And we've seen that, you know, we've, we were one of the first to put up our hands uh, with respect to Afghani refugees. Um, and, uh, and of course we sent a, uh, we just recently sent our own Newfoundland contingent over to the, to Warsaw, Poland to, to help be the first, you know, the point of first contact and, and trying to help uh, displaced refugees in, in that uh, humanitarian disaster as well.
1: just want to come back quickly to the oil and gas thing. We know we have uh, Bay Dunar is as is a potential project there, but the feds seem to be a little slow to improve that project. And we've been hearing about the new LNG uh, project as a as a potential large-scale project I think over the next twenty to thirty years, and you touched on this earlier, there's going to be a demand for that, particularly now with Russia and all of the turmoil uh, in Europe. So, what what are what is your government doing to take advantage of this opportunity and and uh, work with your federal counterparts to move this stuff along a little faster than we've seen in recent years?
2: Yes, so beta nor is incredibly important, and I think is uh, it's. It, it's important on many levels. And what I've been doing is describing that, articulating that um, to the federal government, uh, to those in the decision-making uh, those who are making the decisions, to the decision makers So economically, of course, it's an incredible project for the province um, in terms of work and, and uh, the multiple billions of dollars of return to their GDP. But for the federal government, for Canadians, Frankly, for our NATO allies, this product is what the world needs right now. It's low carbon emitting. It's not landlocked. Uh, it's has, for example, it's, it's 0.2 megatons a year. It fits perfectly into the net zero 2050 target. <laughs> if we are transitioning from heavy, you know, high carbon emitting products to lower in this time of transition, this is the product. I would argue there's a moral imperative that we should be using, and therefore we should be developing. So the, it's, it ideologically fits, I think, with where uh, the federal government wants to, and frankly, the world needs to go towards a, a target of uh, 2050, and, and we uh, accept that. Uh, but that's why it's so important to develop it now, It's for the, for the next 20 or 30 years. In addition, you, you, you touched on the geopolitical um, tensions, and look you know i've been criticized by an economist here locally by say, because i have said you know we can help in that european play because he, you know he, i think they came back with well you know that's you know it's not like you can put a straw in the ocean and oil comes out no but think of the consequences of the of say of Euro, of europe and the united states saying no russian oil that's not a decision that was made <laughs> You know very lightly, and it's not one, and we all hope that the Ukrainian crisis passes very quickly and peacefully, but even with the passage of time and the, and hopefully the quick resolution of peace, there is going to be a massive quantity of oil that is required um, that is going to be decades long in the transition of Europe in particular to a cleaner renewable resource. This is the oil that that continent, in particular, and the United States will need if we're going to meet our environmental targets, and if we're going to ensure that our NATO allies are no longer relying on Russian petroleum products.
1: Yeah, and East Coast oil is certainly a lot closer geographically than our West Coast uh, 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 reserves.
2: I mean, so all of that helps reduce the environmental footprint, right? We're we're lucky and we're not landlocked, so there's no you know there's no pipelines, there, there's no uh, we can use the most modern technology on these platforms to ensure that uh, things like flaring and is it, all at the lowest possible emission capacity um, so we have First of all, we have a great product. It's sweet it's, it's petroleum, and the, for the most part, and is lower carbon emitting at the outset to refine. But in addition to all that, we have the benefit of a new frontier, a new field like Beta Noor that's able to capitalize on all the digitalization, all the current technology um, to make sure that is low carbon emitting. And it will come in at 8 kilograms a barrel. I mean, that's incredibly low. And 0.2 megatons of carbon a year. When you look at you know other companies around Canada, Bombardier is .13 and growing. You know, and and so this is a kind of, this is a nice project that it that fits, I think, perfectly ideologically, ethically, and economically into the, into what should be a time of transition plan.
1: One last question on energy, uh, Premier. You talked earlier about hydrogen. We know that Noia has now rebranded as Energy NL, so it is also embracing. Uh, still very supportive and 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 arguing strenuously for Bay and other oil and gas projects, but also thinking longer term to broader sources of energy. You talked earlier about possibly more wind and, and hydrogen. Uh, uh, you talked a little bit about using some of those re- reserve funds that you're putting aside to develop that sector. Okay. Excuse me, can you tell us a little bit more about that? Because it seems to me everybody wants to play in hydrogen now I mean we've heard it out of Alberta we've heard it in uh, in uh, even in Nova Scotia uh, Quebec is talking about becoming a player in hydrogen I'm not sure everybody uh, can be a leader in hydrogen so what's the what's the play here for Newfoundland and Labrador
2: well I mean w- you know I would argue that we have several differentiators uh, first of all it's our proximity to uh, to the northeastern seaboard and to uh, and to Europe uh, so you know uh, with respect to my other provincial colleagues, um, if you have to produce hydrogen, liquefy it, and then it has to be shipped. So if it's being produced in Alberta, for example, it has to get somehow to a port and be put on a ship and then go either you know, west or east. through. To, you know. So we are geographically very well positioned uh, for, for a European market. Uh, but beyond that, we have, the, we have an incredible resource. If you look at any wind mapping uh, around uh around the world and certainly uh, around Canada, Newfoundland and Labrador has the strongest, some of the strongest winds. There, there are portions of the island that is just too strong for any wind firm. They'll blow over no matter who, where how it's constructed. So we have consistent, stable capacity of clean wind, uh, we have an abundance, of course, of clean water. Which uh, we, there's no desalination. We have an abundance. We're very fortunate on the island to have an abundance of clean water, which adds to the to the uh, to the efficiency of the electrolysis process. Um, so, and we have this workforce, of course, that is able to is used to being in that industrial space of offshore uh, energy uh, production. So. We have uh, we have the resource, we have the workforce, we have the proximity, um, and I think that's what perhaps differentiates us from some others. I mean, you hear of Saudi Arabia, for example, doing uh, hydrogen, and that's all fine. They're going to use solar and and and, uh, and blue hydrogen, as I understand it, but they're still going to have to desalinate water, and like there's extra steps and complexities, frankly, that I think can be eliminated here in, in Newfoundland and Labrador.
0: One of the sectors uh, that Seems to be doing quite well is the technology sector, uh, which, according to TechNL, currently employs more than sixty five hundred people in the province. So that's a big number. Um, What is the government strategy to help grow this sector further, Premier?
2: Yeah, so we've decided to take a a more holistic approach to the sector and recognizing that uh, their needs and uh, and making sure that we are educating our youth. towards that, that ecosystem or that sector. Um, so in cooperation with the with the multiple firms now that are living and working in that sector, uh, we want to, again, support them through immigration to fulfill their uh, human resource needs. But we also wanna make sure that we are educating the K to 12 system towards, uh, towards technology. Uh, and then the college and the university system directed towards Uh, the technology sector. And that kind of, one of our advantages of being so small as Newfoundland and Labrador is that we can pivot quicker. And we have uh, seen how we could do that in the past, creating this pipeline uh, towards an industry. Uh, You know, uh, forgive the the analogy, but, you know, when I was going through high school, there was no oil and gas sector. Uh, So that wasn't talked about in high school. That wasn't really offered as a uh, as a career path to pursue in undergrad, uh, but then all of a sudden things changed, and, and it was you know there was more focus on math, STEM, in in, um, in high school level, and then towards even uh, then in the in the engineering faculty and the business faculty at Memorial. Uh, so we are able to pivot faster in our educational streams uh, to make sure that we can fulfill the needs of the technology uh, ecosystem. You know, I really think we have a lot um, to offer the ecosystem. If you look around the world, most of these big tech hubs aren't in the big cities right there. You know, it's, there's something about that that seems to dampen creativity and ingenuity. And that's Newfoundland's a great spot for that. We have a ton of creativity. We have ton of, you know, we've reinvented ourselves multiple times. There's a great creative sense uh, in who we are here, but also the want to do better and often our best resource was always exported, and that was the people, because uh, there was limitation of the geography and, and the cost of doing business on an island. Well, that's been eliminated with, with technology, you know, so we can have the Verifins of the world provide, you know, security uh, uh, through, na- you know, to NASDAQ and uh, and others around the world here in St. John's. We just need to make sure as a government we're supporting them in particular with uh, with the human capital portion of the of the equation.
0: Uh, clearly the pandemic has had a devastating impact on the tourism and hospitality industry really across the world. Um, uh, prior to the pandemic, the tourism industry attracted more than a half a million visitors and generated uh, nearly a half a billion dollars to the provincial economy in Newfoundland. And in fact, Newfoundland has a reputation of having some of the best tourism product and advertising in the country. Uh, What efforts are in place to help rebuild the sector of the economy, Premier?
2: So we recognize how important the tourism industry is uh, here for for the economy, but also for the psyche of of people in Newfoundland and Labrador. We like to welcome people. We like to host people. It's a beautiful place and it's often a bucket uh, list destination for many Canadians. So uh, during the pandemic, we ensured that there were supports in place for uh, tourism operators that uh, couldn't open or could only open at partial capacity. But in emerging from the pandemic uh, last uh, fall, we announced that uh, this year was going to be a come home year. Uh, you know, 2022 was going to be a bit of a come home year for Newfoundland and Labrador, which would allow us to infuse uh, capital into the industry. but. Also reinvigorate the spirit of the industry um, and reinvigorate some previous uh, rural in particular festivals uh, that needed a bit of infusion of cash probably before the pandemic, but certainly after the pandemic as well. Um, and to do so in a coordinated way so that we were calling on, you know, all Newfoundlanders and Labradorians living abroad to, or those who haven't been, those who have never been, those who want to come for the first time to come to Newfoundland and Labrador in 2022. And I can tell you from talking to all many tourism operators, many of whom are in my beautiful district of hummer Morne, which involves the Morne National Park, they have exceeded their 2019 uh, target um pre-pandemic target already. And now we're booking uh, for next year. Uh, So we're excited to to not only revive the industry, but to uh, ensure that it continues on the growth trajectory that we know it can be.
1: I want to ask you about the fishing sector. You talked a little bit about it earlier in terms of the labor force, but the ocean sector in general, whether it's offshore wind or aquaculture, or the, the, the core fishery sector is key to the Newfoundland economy. Can you tell us a little bit about what your plans are for the ocean sector?
2: Sure, so I think you have to look at it in a in a broader lens than uh, traditionally has been used uh, for Newfoundland and Labrador. So, you know, whether you call it the blue economy or the ocean industries, um, uh, there is an incredible opportunity uh, here in Newfoundland and Labrador to to capitalize on, 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 frankly, why we're all here. It's because of the ocean, <laughs> it's an island. Uh, whether that is in the fish harvesting or, or processing industry, uh, you know, we have not we've done, where well, the federal government has done better in, in navigating the science surrounding some of our stocks, and that's still allowed for an incre- incredible uh, industry here in both a traditional and non-traditional way. Uh, and we need to kind of make sure that we are continuing to exercise the value of that, but. We also need to look at other opportunities in in the ocean whether that's as you mentioned through aquaculture um, or frankly you know in carbon capture and you know things like uh, you know I know it's a new marketplace but I I think our province could be well positioned uh, in that space as well um, using the oceans like seaweed farms etc to you know to create a carbon capture Uh, We also, you know, have, of course, the ongoing petroleum industry, and and I'm really uh, incredibly bullish on uh, what our offshore wind could provide, whether that's through hydrogen or, frankly, some of the economics of some projects that have been pitched in the past, like transmission to the northeastern seaboard. Some of those economics have changed immensely with the kind of ESG focus and ensuring that uh, we... So there is potential that... You know, didn't exist before with respect to our oceans in terms of offshore wind that we need to kind of make sure that we're trying to capitalize on now. So, I mean, the ocean is what what brought us here. It's going to be it's, it's going to be what keeps me here, even though I don't swim in it. I'm not a sailor. I don't fish in it. I prefer river fishing, but it is it defines who we are as Newfoundlanders and Labradorians for sure.
0: Premier, you're in a u- unique position given your <laughs> previous profession to talk about healthcare. And I'm really interested in what uh, what you're going to do to deal with the challenges of healthcare, including, you know, the pandemic's clearly shown us with lots of problems, including long-term care. Uh, new funding's coming in from the federal government to try to make up the backlog. It doesn't seem like that much, frankly. But, you know, there needs to be systemic changes to healthcare, as you know, very well. Now, what, what are the key ones that you're focused on in Newfoundland?
2: You're absolutely right. I mean, healthcare as we know it, I would argue hasn't really changed since the 60s. I mean, we're all very proud of it. We all own it as Canadians. But I think uh, that this time of disruption with the pandemic uh, behooves all of us to have a look and examine, is this the right system for the right time? And I don't believe throwing more money at the same system that's not providing better results is the answer. I know that stating the obvious, but in Newfoundland and Labrador, for example, we spend the most per capita on healthcare, yet we have the worst outcomes. Like if we were all, you know, somewhere like six to $8,000 per person per year in healthcare. And if, look, if we were spending that and everyone was living to be 108 and playing tennis and, you know, like that would be great, but that's not true. We're, we live, the, we have the lowest life expectancy. And so money is not Money is, of course, part of the solution, but it is not the only part of the solution. So what we did here in Newfoundland and Labrador was we launched a, um, a health accord uh, using uh, Dr. Uh, Pat Parfrey and Sister Elizabeth Davis, both well-respected, well-known health professionals, uh, about uh, 18 months ago. And they uh, met with uh, all the stakeholders and met with all the communities and, and tried to wrap their head around what's the best way to reposition the healthcare system uh, because, you know, creating more beds sure that that's a bit of a band-aid in my opinion, we need to look at it holistically. If, if you look at some of the economics of how we've invested in healthcare over time, our healthcare spending has escalated fairly significantly in Newfoundland and Labrador or any other province, but our social spending has flatlined. And so if you're looking at things like the social determinants of health, which is the number one predictor of health outcomes. We've done it. We've done our citizens an immense disservice by not investing in the social determinants of health. We're all we're all happy to cut ribbons on PET scanners and MRIs and everything else, but we, we're not we're not investing in the in the stuff that prevents you from getting to those machines. So, um, you know, we're trying to take a holistic approach and looking at the social determinants of health, but then also looking at for us, you know. Just to remind your listeners, Newfoundland and Labrador has three times the land mass of the other, of the maritime provinces combined with one third of the population of the maritime provinces combined, so our density is a problem, so we need to change our thought of traditional delivery of medicine, especially in rural and remote areas, and harness the ability to, uh, to harness the technology that has advanced and has become more utilized and available because of the pandemic to redefine how we deliver care. I think the days of you know having a traditional family practice doctor whether frankly whether that's urban or or rural those days are passing and the longer we hang on to that paradigm the worse it's going to be for patients ultimately. Everyone wants their you know that style of care but that's that I would argue that that ship has long sailed. That's not the way medical students are being trained. That's not, the, that's not the way they want to practice. Uh, no one wants to go to a rural community or very few anymore uh, to practice as the sole practitioner for you know, 5,000 people with no support. So we need to kind of look at different models. And, and the model that we're going to try to employ is no different than other jurisdictions, but is more collaborative team approach, uh, harnessing technology to ensure that we're delivering the services to the communities that need them when they need them, but equally recognizing that there can't be a neurosurgeon in every community. So, you know, maybe you don't, maybe, you know, the, the ER is open, but you see a, an advanced care paramedic. And frankly, if you're in a small community uh, on the coast, if you're having a stroke, you don't need to see a doctor on the on the south coast of Newfoundland, you need to get to a hospital that is a stroke center. And so, you know, to, to be, to have, the technology there to be able to see somebody in person, but then the technology support of having a full neurosurgical neuro, neurology backdrop, neuroradiology support system on a screen will, I would argue, accelerate your care and lead to better outcomes. So we're trying to tackle it holistically, first on the social determinants of health, but also on on on, how, on the provision of care and how we can do it differently, not necessarily more I mean, we'd all love it for for it to be more cost effective, but you have to assume some inflation and other things. So that's that's a statement that's fraught with difficulty. But you know, to provide it more efficiently so that it's 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 driving the patient outcome is what we should ultimately be after.
0: Oh, that that was worth hearing. That that was a good response to a big tough issue. So thank you for that. Uh, another area that we've been talking about on the podcast is the negative impact of the pandemic on education. The learning gap that's clearly been uh, created for the P-12 uh, public education system, there does not seem to be very many plans in place, Premier, anywhere to address this learning gap. Uh, uh, does New- Newfoundland have any plan at all to address this problem?
2: I, you know, I think this is something we're all struggling with. I mean, I'm struggling with it on a personal level. I have three children in the K-12 to system. And... Uh, and I see how hard it has been on them Um, and I see deficiencies is not the right word but I can see the rate of learning that had occurred differently at different times because of the pandemic and and to suggest there is a gap is is completely correct and um, you know we're I think we're all struggling with how to uh, how to make that gap up or close that gap or fill that gap in Um, and I don't think there's any easy solution I mean uh, especially if we're being honest and, and, and recognizing the pliability, the malleability of of a childhood of a child's brain, you can't make that gap up when they're 25, for example, you know, like that there is a moment in time to capture that. uh, And, you know, how we supplement that, how we try to buttress the the loss there is, is a difficult question that frankly, I, I wish I could give you more, uh, profound answer to, but I don't. I don't have the answer to that.
0: Yeah, no one seems to at the moment, unfortunately. Uh, one of the things that has been uh, advocated recently is the creation of a regional equity tax credit, uh, mainly from the private sector, that would allow companies uh, everywhere in Atlantic Canada to receive tax benefits for investments in any of the Atlantic provinces to increase the uh, availability of risk uh, capital for startup businesses. Uh, do you have a position on this proposal yet, uh, Premier? Would you like to say yes uh, on the podcast for us or what?
2: <laughs> <laughs> well, the Atlantic Premier just met uh, last week, I believe, or the week before. Uh, the days blur together. Uh, and this was an item of discussion. And I believe uh, Premier Higgs was going to lead the uh, lead the charge on this. Uh, to uh, In concept, it seems uh, – like something we'd all like to know more about, um, and but we were all uh, wanting of more details, uh, and of course then the implications of said details. So uh, I believe Premier Higgs and his team are going to take that away and uh, champion that. It's uh, certainly an interesting concept, and one that I, I, again we're all interested to see uh, more than just the uh, more than just the, the conceptual framework.
1: So, Premier, my last question is just sort of expanding a little bit on this idea of regional cooperation if you look at the trade flow between, say, uh, Saskatchewan and Alberta and BC and Alberta and Manitoba and Saskatchewan, it's much more significant than between Newfoundland and Labrador and the maritime provinces. So, so Don and I think there's a lot of commonalities that we share as four provinces. We face a lot of demographic and economic, similar economic challenges. Do you see uh, any more potential for regional cooperation and uh, are there specific areas where you see the four provinces could work better together?
2: Oh, look, uh, it's like you were, have been eavesdropping on some of my conversations. I, I, you know, I don't believe Atlantic Canada is, uh, is exercising the full value of scale. We're combined a small U.S. city. Um, and, you know, whether that's procurement or trade, we, we really haven't uh done a great job of uh of exercising our commonalities and our synergies and we need to do better i keep pointing to and i don't mean to pick uh, a particular uh, industry but i mean from my experience you know with why are we paying different sticker prices for total hip replacements in nova scotia pei new brunswick and and newfoundland and labrador (laughs) like it, it just doesn't Make any sense? Again, we're you know a small U.S. city. uh, You know why do we need to? I think COVID has allowed us to realize that we are all closer and less territorial than we would like. You know than obviously previously thought. Um, And I think there is a moment in time right now from this disruption from the Atlantic provinces where we can have an incredible uh, shared economic opportunity uh, together. Um, I think that the four premiers are very like-minded and I think again that uh, COVID and the Atlantic bubble and the success of that even has shown how uh, there is a a willingness uh, and a need I would argue because you know Newfoundland and Labrador may be a little worse than some of the others don't forget we don't get equalization by the way but um, (laughs) you know we're all together collectively stronger recognizing that, that we are globally together, you know, still very small economies. And if we can exercise the scale of that, then I think that the region uh, as a whole will be much better off.
0: Well, Premier, we've taken, uh, we've taken lots of your time. Uh, we've really enjoyed this conversation. It's been very uh, thoughtful uh, from your point. And uh, we want to thank you for joining us on the insights podcast. Uh, You have a big job ahead of you, and we wish you well in helping um, uh, make uh, the economy in the province more successful. So uh, thanks again. Thanks, Premier. You've been listening to the latest episode of the Huddle Insights Podcast. Mark Legere helped produce this episode. You can follow the show and listen to past episodes on podcast platforms like Apple and Spotify. And if you've enjoyed listening, please recommend the show to a friend. Don and David will be back again next week. This episode of Insights was brought to you by MNP Digital, a firm that guides, protects, and empowers organizations along their digital journey. See how at mnpdigital.ca.